1: Hello, this is Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. It's the podcast that searches out some of the favourite or perhaps most significant books of some of our treasured public figures to shine new light on their lives and on their work. My guest this time around is Juliet Stevenson, one of our leading and most celebrated actresses whose stage career began with the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 1980s and ever since. Roles in TV, theatre and film have drawn glowing reviews from critics and audiences alike. Perhaps best known for Truly, Madly, Deeply, Anthony mingala's film in which she starred alongside the late Alan Rickman. Juliet Stevenson will be back in the West End this autumn in The Doctor, a play about identity politics, medical ethics and cancel culture. Uh, Juliet, welcome to Books to Live By. Hello. Um, I thought maybe we should just start by talking about The Doctor because obviously what, what it highlights as we mention a play is that, you know, so much of your work is about reading and translating uh, what you read. And uh, this is a play uh, that you were in a production of, I think, in the Almeida in 2019, and and, and then had to stop because of the pandemic. And and now you're preparing to bring it back to the West End. But it's one of those wonderful uh, revivals of a play that has been completely transformed in the process. And it's one of the things that Makes me love theatre. So tell me what's happened to this play.
0: Yes, it's so it's based on a Schnitzler play written in the very early twentieth century. Schnitzler was a Jewish Austrian writer. I think we know him only really for La Ronde, which is quite often done as a play. Otherwise, not very well known. And Rob Eich, my great friend and wonderful director and collaborator, he 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 does a lot of classical work. You know, we did Hamlet with Andrew Scott and 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 Mary Stuart, the Schiller play. But he always seeks to rewrite these classic plays or rather edit them in the case of hamlet but to rewrite them in the light of the of the modern age of the, of the times we're living in and he's done a kind of brilliant job with the doctor it was it was written about a male doctor in a clinic private clinic in vienna in about 1900 and the storyline is the same. A young girl comes in dying of a botched abortion and he can't save her. A priest arrives to give her the last rites and he wants to keep the priest away because he desperately wants this child to die peacefully, not knowing that she's dying. And the last rites will, will you know, evidently make it clear to her that she's dying. And so he fights to keep the priest away and that becomes a massive controversy. And Rob Ike, when he was rewriting it, saw a chance to really Explore this in the light of the, you know, of of social media culture and this explosion of, you know, cancel culture and of opinion, of echo chambers and opinion making, and the way in which an incident that happens relatively privately can be blown up by social media um, and by people all chipping in with their particular viewpoint and their angle and their vested interest to create this whole culture of. Well, of, of cancellation, which is what happens to this character, my character. So he made her a woman rather than a man. And he's kept her Jewishness. And he's, he's introduced all sorts of other elements, which which mean there are a lot of people to have a vested interest. With Catholics or pro and anti-abortionists, there are anti-Semitism movements. There's all sorts of influences that have a view on what happens to her in this hospital corridor. So it's, it had an explosive Reaction amongst audiences when it, when it first opened, because it is controversial, but it does take apart the idea that you can judge any situation without looking at context.
1: Um, I'm I'm sure you were very excited to see the the lead character be transformed from male to female because I think it's always been your ambition, or certainly was when you were younger, uh, to play some of those big Shakespeare leads. You know, you fancied Lear rather than Titania or Kate or you know, any of those characters. Is that still a sort of burning ambition? And is it because they're men or is it because they get the best, the biggest, the most loaded parts a lot of the time? Oh,
0: not because they're men at all no absolutely because their range of their experience is so huge and so varied and diverse and now I'm sort of got involved in this acting your age campaign which is not started by me by wonderful Nikki Clark and that's about really campaigning to get much better parts for women over the age of 40 because I mean, this relates to many industries professions not just ours but you know the, the parts just die away. Um, And women after 40 are very often, the the parts shrink, they become domesticized, they very often become cliched and two-dimensional, whereas men's trajectory as actors goes on and on and on. You know, they go from Romeo to Macbeth to King Lear. You know, there's nothing to interrupt this flow of amazing roles. But for women, there's a savage cliff edge which many actresses drop off after the age of 40. And so um, I'm very grateful to Rob. Ike for example in this situation thinking well why does this character have to be a man let's make her a woman so there I am you know I'm in my 60s now and with this fantastic diverse complex multi-layered character
1: to play and that's that's rare you know that's rare and um, you were a drama student I think in the in the 70s and uh, you know I mean in the 1970s I can't really decide whether it was fashionable to be a feminist I mean our mothers all tended to be feminists if you were in that sort of echelon but when did you first discover you know was it was it was it something that was just taken for granted at that time in the milieu that you were in or did you discover when did you discover that actually it was more difficult to be a woman oh I think for me
0: arriving into feminism was like for some people you know coming out sexually or something I mean I think in, in the sense that when I discovered feminism which was in my probably not till I was in my mid-20s it was like a huge dawning that I wasn't it wasn't me that was necessarily the problem it was a gender culture uh, situation and it was honestly like I could almost it makes me almost um it, it makes me quite emotional talking about it because it was such such a revelation that I had grown up with from my earliest years as a little girl thinking but I don't want to I don't want to do what you want me to do I don't want to be who you want me to be and why is that why do I want to run around outside wear shorts crawl on my belly in the dust in a field rather than sit at home learning to bake or play with dolls I mean that was I know that's a very corny sort of description of gender roles but that I I did grow up with a strong sense of being a bit different and thinking "I, I I just don't want I don't seem to fit into the boxes and As I became a teenager and went through that sort of awful adolescent period, I really always blamed myself. And I thought, there's something wrong with you, you know, and I felt other. I had some friends, you know, who may have felt the same or similar, but I still felt very isolated. So in answer to your question, my mum wasn't a feminist. No, I mean, I think she would be sympathetic to, to that conversation, but she wasn't. She was conventionally brought up and conventionally married. I was the only daughter, youngest of, you know, two older brothers and... I I mean, I became politically illuminated. You know, I I became quite political in my teens and my late teens particularly, but it was much more to do with party and class politics, very much so. It was the labor movement and then unionization and and all that stuff was very much on the side of the strikers in those 1970s strikes. And I was very opposed to the Heath government and and all those conservative governments. It wasn't until my mid-twenties when I came across certain other actresses and And women who introduced me to people like Dale Spender and Mary Daly and that extraordinary, you know, radicalism of the 1980s um, in the feminism movement, then sort of party politics spread and actually engaged with feminism. And I realized there was very often a clash between the two because all that the old labor movement was very misogynistic. It was very patriarchal and some of it still is very much so. And it's still an effort, you know, you see wonderful female MPs and Labour Party pushing for change, but it's by no means achieved yet. So then I think my politics were very informed by feminism. It was like kind of arriving on an island when I'd been sort of thrashing around in quite a stormy sea. And then I thought, oh, there's a whole language for this. There's a whole culture for this. It was an extraordinary, it wasn't overnight, but it... and, and my first choice of book is very much to do with
1: that. Well, I want to move on to talk about that now. I was going to say, coincidentally, all five of your books are written by women, but um, I presume that's not coincidental. Do you want to just tell me?
0: No, you're quite right. Four of them are, uh, except the one uh, by my husband. And and that, that is a choice, Marianne. You're absolutely right. And it's not a sort of stubborn choice, but I think, and I will explain as I go along, but these choices were to do I took very seriously this wonderful instruction that these are books that changed my life in some way or what they have in common is that they were all revelatory to me. They revealed something really huge and significant. There are many wonderful, wonderful writers who I love who I've not included in this list and that was, you know, there are many fantastic contemporary women writers, you know, Deborah Levy, Ali Smith, Zadie Smith, you know, loads, Sarah Waters, loads and loads of wonderful writers who I adore and I feel to have left them out because contemporary women's fiction is so exciting, so creative. But I've chosen these because they were moments in my life where something huge was revealed by reading the book.
1: So let's talk about The Tamarisk uh, Tree by Dora Russell, because as you said, it does relate in a way to your uh, epiphany moment uh, with feminism.
0: Yes. So Dora Russell was born Dora Black. She married the philosopher Bertrand Russell. She was his second wife. Um, she was born in 1894 and lived a long life. She died only in 1986. And this book is called The Tamarisk Tree, wonderfully subtitled My Quest for Liberty and Love, you know, <laughs> boldly uh, proclaiming her the journey of her life. And I read it when I was in my early twenties, and it was um, it was a revelation because I had previously read Bertrand Russell's three volume autobiography, and I was blown away by him and his. You know, he was left leaning politically, and he connected philosophy to politics, and he was in, in his way, you know, a great he was a great champion of certain things that I believed in, although he became much more conventional later on. But I was blown away when I was very young, so twenty one or twenty two, by reading his his biography, and then. Mm. I read his wife's biography, which is this book. And the difference in the telling of their stories was so marked. It it was extraordinary. And it was an absolute education. And it was when I realised, I think, that, you know, God, the same marriage, the same narrative, told from different perspectives, was just so illuminating. The discrepancy between their accounts, you know, what he attributed to her, and then reading how she had um, described what had happened in their marriage. He was... Passionately in love with her, and he persuaded her to marry him. She was very much opposed to all forms of convention. So she didn't want, she, she rejected religion. She was an atheist. She was, um, you know, she rejected marriage as an institution. She wanted, to, she believed in sort of free love. She was one of that generation, you know, that amazing generation of quite posh, but very highly educated, radical um, feminist women of the early 20th century who. Who were extraordinarily bold in breaking with their class and their traditions and all British sort of establishment rules and seeking change, change for the better of all, very opposed to the privileges of their own class, in some ways products of their class. But anyway, that was her and she really aligned her whole life behind those beliefs and married to, to Bertrand Russell. You know, they started off wonderfully combining you know they created this school, their belief in education was that children should be free from the domination of convention, they should be happy at school and healthy. So they founded this very experimental school called Beacon Hill, where children ran around with very few clothes on, and everybody was called by their first name and there was no punishment system and no authority. It was a sort of ideological experiment in, mm. in education. But then he left her. He was quite a philanderer. He left her um, and she
1: continued,
0: committed. And he's left the school and that whole ideal, really. And she went on with it and pursued it um, for but many years.
1: For me, one of the, the things that, that's really interesting with this book is is this sense that, um, that the minute she decided to marry him, that was, in many ways, the end of the life that she'd aspired to. You know, she had to give up everything and it's a sort of timely reminder I suppose for a start about how far we have progressed in that you know once upon a time you were damned if you got married and you were damned if you didn't you know and and those were the only choices that 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 women had um but also I, I wonder if you think that we've progressed so much further in terms of the difference between a long-term partnership, a marriage for women and for men. For a long time, you were against it. Congratulations. I know you got married <laughs> a year ago, <laughs> finally. Um, did yeah. she, th- Did reading this book cement that determination not to get married for, for, for quite a while longer? That's
0: a, that's a great question. You know, I think it may have done I mean, um, I grew up in a marriage, and My mum and dad had their problems. There was a lot of love there, but there was huge problems for a long, long period. And I had witnessed that very, very close hand and seen my mum's immense frustrations at being sort of tied down by an army marriage that, that frustrated her at times hugely. And I think I grew up, I did grow up thinking I am not going to be or do anything that I don't think is right, you know, and um and I did reject the institution for a long time. I thought it was an institution for me that was, that em- embodied patriarchy, you know, that women take men's names for a start, which still seems extraordinary that you would give up your own name. Um, and, and, um, and that, you know, e- 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 economically, historically, it was about, it was always about subjugation of, of, of woman. I think when marriage, so so I rejected it for all those reasons in, in my youth and I never really ex- as Aspired to that way of life, but then as the years have rolled by and I've now lived with Hugh for nearly 30 years and And then I, when I saw marriage really transform itself by allowing same-sex marriage when that event happened in British society I thought okay, this institution has finally really Transformed, you know if sex, same-sex marriage is allowed then I can embrace the institution and it has really you know, transformed itself, and and so when you know we decided to get married, partly for obvious practical reasons, but also I definitely felt I'm happy now to stand up and say this is the man I you know I love to bits, and I'm very I want to say that to the world. So I, I but I think I was I've also been a bit haunted that I might have betrayed a principle which certainly Dora Russell never did, and she really aligned her whole life behind her belief system you know she was an extraordinary spokeswoman for for women's rights she founded the workers birth control group she she worked for the abortion law reform campaign she was a passionate campaigner for, for working women's rights and i think and all all kinds of of sort of Progressive
1: but isn't that movements. also what's sad about this book, which is that she was clearly an incredibly committed campaigner, interested in so many different aspects of life. And yet it's full of a sort of sense that that her life ended to an extent after Bertrand Russell and her marriage split up in terms of the fact that it, it, the book is so much about him and and perhaps not enough about her.
0: Well, I don't think her life fell apart. She did have another great love, this guy Jack Gillard, her, which was perhaps her greatest love, actually. And she did keep going, and she had very unhappy and very painful experiences with her children as well. But she kept going, and her motto was, despair is a luxury we cannot afford. And that's become my mantra, really. And um, Despair is a luxury we cannot afford. And when I think, you know, all of us have felt... Very, very despairing at times in the last few years about you know whether it's about this huge move to the extreme right or across the world or or COVID or the appalling sort of escalation of violence and cruelty you know in the in, in, in the current war in the Ukraine or uh, the all the brutality we witness and very often you know um, at the hands of these extraordinarily male regimes you think well. It's easy to give up and it's easy to get really, really depressed and despairing. But I always think of Dora Russell and think, no, you can't afford to. You just can't afford to. You have to keep in some way optimistic that humanity and humanism will prevail as she as she did. I think she was, she became very unhappy and must have had long periods of depression, but she did have this extraordinary stoic personality that I think did enable her to sustain. And And above all, she placed herself behind her beliefs she lived her life according to what she believed in and i think i admire that more than anything you know it's so easy now to click on a petition or to sort of be seen to be working for change while actually not really doing anything and we're all guilty of it you know it's all, we, we do a bit of recycling and we think we've joined the environmental movement but actually we're still flying <laughs> you know we're still flying we're, we we are not working nearly hard enough and i'm pointing the finger at my myself before anyone i have to say it quickly Um, Whereas she really did align herself behind what she believed in. And we have to do that now. I mean, especially where the environment is concerned. If we don't do that, we are doomed. We all need a bit of Dora Russell now, I think, to save the world.
1: What about a little bit of Elizabeth Gaskell as well? Because uh, your next book choice is is North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, which is, of course, came out at the same time as as Dickens was writing novels. And let's face it, there weren't very many uh, 19th century uh, women who uh, were able to write under their own names and and proudly kind of explore themes as she did.
0: Yes, exactly. Lots of the things I've chosen today were things I, I was asked to read As an audiobook, and this was one of them a long, long time ago, maybe like 25 years ago, I recorded the whole thing and I was completely blown away by it. I love the 19th century massive novels. I love all of them, like Zola and Dickens and Really, you know, the Bronte's. And I love the fact that they weren't edited. And I you know, I love their length and their excess. And (laughs) yeah, I kinda I love because it enables you to go all sorts of weird and crazy directions, and nobody's no editor is stopping the writer you know,
1: going off on one. That's what what I don't like about them. You've identified very succinctly exactly what I don't I mean, I I also left school very young, so I'm not sure that I... I think I've always felt like I was playing catch-up, and and it's been much more instinctive to catch up with modern more modern books than it has been 19th century. And so I'm always interested to know what's so great about them. And you're doing a very good job of, of, well, of describing Well, I mean, that's
0: that's really interesting because I, I didn't go to university and I am always feeling that I'm playing catch-up too, very much so. I'm, I feel very, you know, uneducated and I have relied on, you know, I went to drama school instead of university. So I never had a period of huge reading, except I read a lot when I was a teenager and into my 20s, but I read very slowly. So... I'm very grateful for any reading that work throws up you know whether it's an audiobook or whether it's reading around a film or a play or something but I have loved reading those huge 19th century novels because I'm playing catch up with history because I didn't study 19th century history we never got past the Tudors and Stuarts you know so I in at A level so I'm really glad to have had this chance and I love Dickens and, and the Bron- and the Brontes and all those people but this one blew me away and I think I wanted to to choose her rather than one one of the others, any of the men, because she has been so patronised by sort of literary tradition, I think, and by the sort of critical community, you know. This is an extraordinary book, and it's such a brilliant idea. Her her heroine, Margaret Hale, is a very young girl who lives in the sort of leafy serenity of the south of England. You know, her dad is a vicar. They're living in the home counties somewhere, and then uh, for reasons... I won't bore you with, he gets moved, his parish gets moved to Manchester at the height you know, of the Industrial Revolution. So she goes from living in sort of Surrey or something or Sussex to, to the heart of industrial Manchester. So with these very innocent eyes of Margaret, we're taken into the centre of that sort of mass of the working, the textile mills of the 19th century with all the horrendous sort of um, conditions of work and, and, and the abuses of the, la- of the labor force that went on. And so because she knows and understands none of it to start with, we're taken into it through the innocence of her eyes. And she, she becomes very friendly with some of the working families. She makes great friends with this young woman, Bessie, whose father is a union organizer and her shock at the conditions in which people are working at the poverty the illness the early deaths and the impact of the conditions on people and their families and the sort of great dignity and tenacity and, and courage that she admires in this in these working people is incredibly powerfully described and always from the perspective of the working poor you know which is unusual i mean many of those other writers are dealing you know are dealing with we're looking through the eyes of the middle class or the landed gentry even but with mrs gaskell it's really through the eyes of the working people and then she comes into conflict with this other phenomenon which is the nouveau riche mill owner john thornton and that's a whole new class you know it's it's when our class system was being formed really isn't it that's mid 19th century so this newly rich previously poor worked up through the system newly rich john thornton who's the kind of boss and in a way the villain and he becomes attracted to her and they have this very complicated relationship where her innocence in judging him to be just an out and out monster to start with is then modified by understanding that it's more complicated than that that he has come from poverty and his values although they are offensive to her to her humanity they have come from an experience that she can't possibly understand which is poverty and he and they gradually these two characters move towards each other through the events of the book and by a whole series of events he then becomes bankrupt the market changes he loses his money she then inherits his house through a series of of events and she becomes his landlord and then eventually they they marry at the end so there's this huge journey of sort of um gradual incremental understanding between them um,
1: so it manages to be a a, a social novel you know uh, concerned with what's happening in society but at the same time this this sort of well I think epic love story would be would be fair enough to 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 say in one way why did it have such a profound effect on you is it is it different you know when you when you're reading something as an audiobook do you find that you perhaps get more immersed in it than you might if you were sitting in bed at night I don't know because you have to read it more slowly don't you and you have to think and act it
0: You do. That's a really great question. I mean, I think I do. I read very slowly, but I do read in detail. So I get very immersed in everything. But when you're reading it as an audiobook, you have to be all the characters. So you can't take a a view. You've got to be everybody. And if you're going to play John Thornton or or any of those characters, you've got to understand their point of view. You've got to be in their skin when you're speaking their words. And that means, I think, that you do actually sort of inhabit more points of view, possibly, because that's the job. Your job is not to stand in the way of the the listener slash reader. Your job is just to communicate the book to the listener reader and not to get in the way. But but in the process, you've got to really understand every individual character you're voicing. So I think that's it's a great question. I think that you do perhaps get it more immersed in it. And I think for me it was, well, again, not studying this in, in history classes at school, it was an absolute revelation about the Industrial Revolution, the impact of that on you know on families, on the creation of the class system. It is a massive tapestry it's this extraordinary detailed tapestry and it's a very very female perspective when the book came out it's now considered to be you know a work of great of great you know literary merit but at the Mm. time it was completely dismissed by all those guys you know those male critics and lord david Cecil wrote this very sort of misogynistic piece saying Elizabeth Gaskell is all woman, which was his his view in it's his the view worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah, be. yeah yes. exactly. The worst thing. She makes a creditable effort to overcome her natural deficiencies, but all in vain. He says, <laughs> you know, unbelievable. And it wasn't until, you know, Raymond Williams and those much more sort of open minded, sort of progressive critics of the nineteen fifties and sixties. It was only then that she Became sort of recognized, and and people realized it's not that she was telling the story wrong. It was that she was telling the story from a female point of view, which is just different from the male gaze, and that's that's the genius of the book, really. And it's not that she's she's not conforming to a male framework. It's that her her viewpoint is different because she's a woman, and so I think now she does enjoy more status. But I still think that she's um, she she had to, she doesn't get the credit she deserves. In a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: I love the fact that that you know the the more womanly she was, the worse she was in a way yes, having written yes. that book recently about about menopause. One of the things that was really striking was that uh, you know, in the 19th century as well, uh, doctors then would, would talk about women going through menopause and, and the, the only redeeming feature of a woman at that point in life as perceived by them was that the fact that, you know, without periods and so on, she became more like a man. And, and that and, and that made it at least you know possible to tolerate yeah, uh, yeah, the irritation yeah. of, of, of menopausal woman you know yeah. redundant because yeah. they could no yeah. longer pro, pro- procreate and so on. Yeah. But it's funny. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one does have to take heart, going back to your point about Dora Russell, one does have to have to take heart because as we talk about these things, wh- what is very clear is that things have changed. they, they may not be perfect mm. by any mm. manner of means, but but you know groundwork has gone on, you know. It's and so I, think, yeah. I think that's so much about, about your next choice, which is Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is a book I read, mm-hmm. I think, well, in my uh, 20s I would have been, but I read it around the same time as I was deeply immersed in magical realism. You know, I was reading yeah. Marquez and I was reading Isabel Allende. Yeah. And to my slight embarrassment and indeed shame, I think I read this more like a magic realist story mm-hmm. than I did as a inc- incredibly profound and unsettling and painful description of slavery and, and, and its legacy, uh, which just harks back to how times have changed. Perhaps. But I don't I think
0: you were wrong. I don't think you were wrong to do that, Mariella, because I think one of the extraordinary things about the book is that it is all those things. You know, I mean, you were not wrong. It, 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 this character of Beloved, as she appears is so strange and alluring and mysterious. And you never really know whether she's real, whether she is sort of the embodiment of the dead child or if she's completely, or is that what we're all projecting onto her and is Sethi projecting onto her? Or, you know, who is this girl who comes into that household and creates such havoc? And. Is she the embodiment of Sethi's guilt about the murder of her baby girl- What is she and you never really know, and I love that it's never really clear that you kind of long for the answers as we always do, but we don't get them and i and I so there is an element of of magic realism, but it's also the most absolutely devastating sort of document and about you know slavery's aftermath i mean to my shame i think i've never thought enough about what happened after slavery you know after the the war the civil war was won Mm. what happened to all the to people who'd been slaves i mean they had nothing they were you know many of them had been completely broken physically psychologically emotionally spiritually and that's part of her story isn't it that these characters are so profoundly in trauma and Mm. and they're literally wandering the world you know there's no reference to them ever, hardly ever eating, apart from in Seth, you sounds, Um, You know, they're, they're just, they're pursued by slave catchers, they're pursued by the past, by guilt, by shame, by dire poverty. I mean, poverty is not strong enough a word. And and, 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 and the legacy, not just of... It, it, it's such an extraordinary piece because it's an historical document, but it's also a massively sort of devastating psychological study of what slavery did both to individuals and to the American people.
1: But I also loved the fact that, I I mean, I just felt she was, you know, outrageous and brave with that story as well, because she didn't try and sort of create heroines in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned Seth's you know, murder of one of her children. You know, it's, it's one of the most horrific things I, I think I've ever read and, and the book is full of, of, of horrifying moments and I thought that it was incredibly brave of her to tackle this subject about which you know, there was a lot of much more self righteous material at that time and yet she just takes it into storytelling in the most visceral possible way.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you know, that phrase, never apologize, never explain. It's actually a phrase I I've found myself questioning because I think sometimes it's very important to apologize <laughs> and to explain. But, um, but in a way, the genius of, of Toni Morrison is that she doesn't do either of those things. She, from the first line of the first page, she drops you in, doesn't she, to do that story? She doesn't explain. You know, there are things you don't understand to start with and you just have to learn to understand them. And you do learn to understand them sort of viscerally. And she doesn't, she, and as you say, the characters are not heroic or, or they're not heroines. They're, they're just um, trying to survive. But there are these moments of intense tenderness and generosity and humanity amongst the, her protagonists, her brutalized protagonists, which are very, very wonderful. But she never, ever makes them into, they never fall into any category. And even the young white girl who gives birth to Sethy's daughter, Denver, when when, when Sethy's dying, basically, um, sort of, Crawling along in the undergrowth, pregnant, about to give birth, and starving, and this extraordinary, strange little white girl called Amy Denver comes along, who's heading for Boston to buy velvet. She's got no money. She's a servant herself. She's completely, mm. you know, the bottom of the white um, hierarchy. But and she just sort of finds herself helping. Sethy hauls her into her hut, massages her feet, and then gives helps her give birth on the boat to to this extraordinary little baby girl Denver who becomes a sort of symbol of hope for the for the story but even that little young white girl who comes to sethie 's aid is not she's tough you know she never turns into a sentimental character or a she's she's wonderfully tough Tony Morrison um
1: I also think that the dialogue's kind of incredible in it. I was looking back at an, an old review of it from around two thousand and I can't remember two thousand and six or something, and again it highlights you know how things have changed because the reviewer was describing it as a you know a really important book. I mean, she'd chosen it in in, in a series of important novels, but they said that it wasn't very easy to understand. It was it was um, you know that 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 To Kill a Mockingbird was much easier to understand, and I thought well, you just. Well, A, you wouldn't say that uh, now, uh, I I guess, which you know i mean i hate the the idea that that one would feel censored but you wouldn't say that but also you wouldn't think it because actually what's really exciting about this book is that that it feels like you you're stepping into a, a completely different world you know and yeah. the, and the language and the vernacular of it is is so much a part of that you know to killing mockingbird is about a white family you know interacting Absolutely. With, and interceding on the on behalf of a of a of a black character yeah. this is about yeah you know, yeah. people.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's extraordinary how she does enable you to understand while never explaining or apologising. I mean, she takes you, she, she's describing life as lived in all the, the time periods of the book because there are, you know, different time periods of flashbacks. You're living with human beings living in their most extreme state. I mean, taking right to the edges of what is bearable or possible in human existence. There can't be anything further, you know, more extreme than how that community were treated, the savagery with which they were treated and the brutality of how they had to live their lives. every part of them was excoriated and sort of um, every part of them was like burned out. And, and, And she describes, you know, the wonderful Paul Dees, This character, ex-slave, who turns up and she says his heart was a little tin tobacco box rusted shut. And whenever she talks about something that he's not feeling or feeling, he talks about this tobacco tin where his heart was once there is this little rusty box that will never again oh, open. It's heartbreaking. And, I mean, it's an extra... But in that brilliant, brilliant image, it takes you immediately into his emotional, psychological state with one perfect symbol. You know, she takes you on that journey. She does take you there. And it. it, it I don't agree that you can't understand it. I think it's the most... If there was one book that tells the story of the horrors of slavery and the, and the legacy that, the, you know, the United States is... And, and our, our part in it, too, you know, us yeah. is, is still at play. So These are still such huge, strong forces in the world, which we still haven't faced up to and come to terms with. I think everybody should read this book.
1: Totally agree. Um, <laughs> let's move on to what sounds like the most spectacular tale of Daring Do. I, I, I put together an anthology a few a few years ago now, three or four years ago, of, um, it was called Wild Women and their incredible adventures over land, sea and air uh, because I felt that there were so many of these extraordinary characters overlooked by history. You know, you always hear about all the the, the, the adventurers and explorers who's, who's, who actually failed. You know, Columbus, Shackleton. <laughs> I mean, you know, so many of them. And, and yet yes. these women's names don't trip off our tongues. But this is, is another example A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell. Um, Tell me about the character that this charts, Virginia Hall.
0: It's so true what you have just said, by the way. You know, we grew up, you know, studying people like, you know, Scott going to the Antarctic. I mean, famously failed, but he's still gone down (laughs) in British history as this huge hero. But here we have an extraordinary um, non-failure with this extraordinarily successful Woman. She was called Virginia Hall. She was a wealthy, glamorous American socialite, very unlikely, very privileged, very unlikely a person to endure the hardships that her life was spent in. She became the most important female spy in World War Two. She worked for the British, well, for the Allies Special Operations. She came to, to London and she worked for Special Operations. Um, And she was so brilliant at this. She was so courageous, um, daring, creative, inventive, tenacious, committed, that she became um, the sort of top, the most important female spy in World War II. And she was working, of course, along with the French resistance in in Vichy France, in in occupied France. And she became the Gestapo's most wanted person um, in 1942, they they put out all these calls they they
1: they described known as the 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 woman with the limp wasn't she yes the
0: the mysterious limping lady she had had a a hunting accident in her days of of privilege she'd had a hunting accident and got shot in the leg and it had been amputated and she had this wooden leg she resisted sort of more modern versions of a um, prosthetic she had a wooden leg which she sort of strapped into the stump and she called it Cuthbert. She called her leg Cuthbert, and she spent her whole life. So, and, and one of the most extraordinary um, things that happen in the book is that she escapes finally across the Pyrenees into Spain with Cuthbert, her wooden leg, grinding into this raw wound inside in her in her Ooh. pelvis, in midwinter in freezing conditions, climbing over the Pyrenees with one leg and blood pouring down her stump, um, in unspeakable pain. You know, passing other corpses of people who tried and failed along the way. It's the most amazing journey. But that's a sort of symptom of this unimaginable courage that she has. And why it's such an important book is partly because you know she, as a woman, experienced extraordinary sexism during the war. They, they very rarely, in spite of her successes, um, and the failures of many of the men around her. She was not awarded any medals. She was constantly patronized by the British authorities. She eventually got, an and, and and Charles de Gaulle, afterwards when the French were liberated, uh, failed to acknowledge her extraordinary contribution to, to the liberation of France. And what's so fascinating is that our idea of French resistance is all these kind of, you know, fascinatingly sexy, you know, cigarette-smoking guys doing amazingly brave and clever and efficient things and, and defeating the German forces. In fact, the reality as described by Sonia Pernell is that there was... Full of ego and internecine politics and competitiveness and failure <laughs> and vanity you know ever was it less and the guys were particularly vulnerable to vanity and the sort of heroism with which they were treated by by the you know the dominated by the you know the french and so they often made mistakes they got drunk they they couldn't keep secrets they, they, they were quite a lot of you know, they were a liability. Of course, there was huge courage, but there was also huge cock-ups. Whereas she had this extraordinary rigour. And, I mean, there, there are wonderful episodes. Like, at one point, she thinks, OK, time to change my identity. You know, she's constantly assuming these identities. She comes back to England. She gets her skin stained brown to look weather She goes to a dentist and has a dentist chip away at all her teeth to make ah. them jagged and pointed and take some of them out. So she's got this terrible dentistry she then puts on padding and and she goes to a costumer and she she dresses up and she goes back to France on the train, arrives at the Gare du Nord and waddles through a whole line of German soldiers dressed and appearing to be a a French peasant (laughs) with these broken teeth and this stained brown skin. And she's so cheeky, you know, she gets away with it. And she's so cheeky that when she's it's the center of operations and she's in disguise as this, as this peasant woman, this cheese-making peasant woman in a French village. She actually goes and sells goat's cheese to the German soldiers every day, stands in front of them in order to sort of listen to their conversations and to make them feel that she's a trustworthy, you know. Her, her, her courage is unimaginable.
1: So what was it? What was it that, that that made you choose this in particular? You know, you said at the beginning you, a sort of disclaimer for all of the contemporary women writers that you love and 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 haven't chosen. What was it that that made you choose this one? And you, you haven't touched yet. I wonder if you were struck by the, the the sort of latter part of of the story of her life, which is after the war, which which is terribly poignant and actually just highlights the fact that. So many women who did extraordinary things during that period weren't really allowed to continue to be their best selves afterwards. Absolutely.
0: I mean, um, so two things. I chose it because its revelation about what the resistance was actually like was extraordinary. I mean, it, I love iconoclasm. I love it when uh, it's it's a myth busting book. Like many of the books I've chosen, it busts that myth of the resistance as being entirely male dominated and and kind of brilliant and romantic, you know, it of course it couldn't be that. And so it takes a piece of history that we think we know well, which has been very sort of polished and dressed up and served up as very much the the prerogative of men. And it busts that open and says, look, it was a much more human story than that. And women's place in it was not chronicled. And here we have a woman who was a genius who ended up running operations that the men had failed to run successfully. But as you say, she was not, she was not recognised for that. So it's partly, I love, books that do bust the myths and, and break open the cliches and, and tell us what the real situation was. But I also was very moved by the fact that, as you say, she was not recognised particularly. When she went back to America after the war, she became, and then the CIA was, was founded, and um, this is the most shocking thing, is that she found herself working under Nazi officers who had been, she had you know, risked her life daily to work against Nazi officers who were employed by the United States in the CIA and were senior to her in the CIA after the war. The thing they had in common was a hatred of communism. So both post-war America and, and the Nazis had a shared hatred of communism. So after the war, the war got sort of put away and their mutual loathing for communism became a sort of, alliance and so she found herself working for an organization uh, in, in america some of her bosses had been members of the nazi party that is just that, so
1: it? shocking so shocking yeah i mean and in fact
0: i mean she wasn't she wasn't given the um the recognition she she so deserved and she did become embittered and actually she became quite sort of right-wing and bitter and she ended up Rather well, sadly, you know, but I think that's all part of a history in which she was not seen. You know, yeah. she was not she was not really. And she didn't do it for the glory or for the awards. But I mean, it's just such a shocking story. really. Yeah.
1: And I think very difficult to taste freedom and then lose it. I think that's yeah. that's that's the thing, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. Um, look, yeah. you have let uh, one man. Uh, <laughs> insinuate himself onto the list it's also the man who uh, I dare say persuaded you to drop your principles against uh, <laughs> matrimony uh, because it's, it's landscapes of silence by Hugh Brody who is now uh, your husband Um That's an obvious reason for choosing it. But tell me why else. He's an anthropologist. Have you ever travelled with him? Do you travel with him?
0: I've often travelled with him. So Hugh, yeah, Hugh is an anthropologist, but not in academia. He's always worked in the field and his work has been with hunter-gatherer peoples. So for many, many years, the Inuit or the Eskimo, as they're more commonly known, but the Inuit people of the high Arctic, northern canada or with first nations people in canada and the united states um, indian so-called indian communities and for many years with the Bushmen of the kalahari in south africa botswana namibia i have traveled with him and the children as well we we when they were little we went quite a lot with him when we could and so i've watched this amazing work and often wondered you know how is it this boy from Sheffield, which he was, you know, this child of Jewish immigrants who his mom escaped from Nazi Vienna, aged 18 and arrived here just out of childhood, knowing nobody. And within six weeks was married to his dad, who was also from a refugee Jewish family from Russia, actually from Ukraine in those days. Um, And his mom's family were almost entirely lost in the Holocaust. So Hugh grew up in Sheffield in this extraordinary sort of home, which was all about absorption into England. You know, his brother and he were called Hugh and Anthony, the most English names. They were sent to minor boarding schools, you know, assimilation. Assimilation was the ambition of his parents to get them into British society and cover up this sort of vulnerable and dangerous past. Um, So their thinking was shaped by the Holocaust, but he was told very little of it. But he had a grandmother, his mother's mother, who would sneak into his room late at night in the dark, and she would whisper these stories of the Holocaust into his ear and tell him what had gone on in Vienna, in Poland and and Austria. And so the story of his family is this sort of terrible stories of the Holocaust came in, in the dark from his grandmother in whispers in the night. And it's a most extraordinary story. And I've heard all this living with Hugh over the years and been fascinated. This book for the first time is Hugh's memoir meeting his anthropology. So he now connects those two things. And when I read it, I said my choices were about revelation. You know, I've lived with you for nearly 30 years, but I never really put these two things together. I wondered, why did this boy, you know, as a young man, go off to the very furthest reaches of the world, like the Northern Arctic? He's always gone to the edges of the world and talked to the most marginalised people and found himself at home there and felt very, very much that he belonged there. And why was that? Why was that? And when I read his book, I understood, you know, that the silence in which he grew up, this culture of silence about the Holocaust, his parents' terror of of his of their children's lives becoming shrouded in the in the agonies of the, of their recent past, of the family's losses and brutal experiences. And then they just wanted their children to grow up as happy they wanted their children to grow up as sort of happy healthy british citizens so but he knew there were all these stories and he heard them in the dark from his grandmother and then i think that in this book he 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 tracks that and then he tracks why it took him to the edges of the world to other silences to communities that live in you know who've been the victims of colonization and all its brutalities and where the abuses of colonialism have driven those those people very often to self destruct those very dark places those communities have gone to. And he's been very much part of the movement to bring them back out of those dark places and back into the light and to be part of all the available healing processes, very often in the form of restoring land or language or culture to those people so that they can reaffirm their identities. And ultimately the book, so it tracks all those journeys in his working life that he has made with these extraordinary people. And it's very moving because it actually, it taught me a lot about how to be alive I think if that doesn't sound sort of portentous thing to say because these are people hunter-gatherer people their relationship to the world is about knowing it not owning it so our relationship with the world is basically owning it having it buying it using it theirs is knowing it you know you know the land because you need the land you know where to pick the right herbs or to get the right fish or, or or the right oil or or you know where the best place to to bury to bury a child is or to find your ancestors. It's, it's about knowledge of the world. And so there's a sort of profound respect for the world that is inherent in their traditions and their beliefs. And in that knowledge and in those beliefs and, and in that culture lies, lies our hope for the world, really, you know, for the planet. And so it's very affirming of everything he's learned from those cultures. And um, it's an extraordinary book, this blend of life experience and anthropology. Um it's a phenomenal read. And I'm not just saying that because <laughs> he's my uh he's my husband. I am I, I was astonished when I read it
1: just finally, Juliet, you've been incredibly gracious with your time. Um, I and I mentioned in the introduction and in almost any um, article one reads about you, um, truly madly, deeply is mentioned. It must feel like it's sort of umbilically attached to you, uh, mm. part of your burden on your back. Um, and it was uh, an extraordinary um, depiction of grief. And I know that, well, I presume that then you hadn't had much experience of grief. I think you lost your father, if I'm right, or was that after that? But I know that in the last couple of years, you, you very tragically lost your stepson, uh, mm. but we don't even call him your stepson, your son. And also recently, your mum. And I wonder about... Uh, there's that book, isn't there, called Grief is, a, is the Thing with Feathers, You know that, that it's made up of lots of different components. I wonder if your portrait today would be the same as the one you delivered in Anthony Mengele's film all those, what, three decades ago?
0: Gosh, that's such a great question. You're right, I hadn't known grief when I made that film. It was before my dad or my brother died, actually. They died not too far apart. Um, I hadn't known grief in the form of death, but I had known loss. It was it was made um, after the end of a hugely important relationship. I so got my heart broken, and I think... I think I just brought all of that to the film, and I think that I sort of felt, and I think Anthony Minghella did too, that loss is loss. It can be grief for a person, it can be grief for a relationship, it can be grief for a home that you've lost, a country if you're, a, you know, refugee. It can be, in a way, loss is loss, and it attaches itself. And there are specifics about grief for a person, of course there are. There are, there are special conditions to that loss, which which make it particular. Um, to what it is that you 've lost but but there is this well inside us, you know life is about learning and losing and moving on and 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 gaining you know and 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 we have to we have to understand and accept loss because it 's going to be part of the journey of our lives, whatever we try and do um, it 's just something you have to deal with, and I think that anthony 's um sort of mission for the film was to, was to portray loss and grief as something which is absolutely real. In your face, sometimes ugly, sometimes really unattractive, you know, hence the, the sort of commitment to snot and tears and anger and all that, you know, depression and, and, and darkness. I think we felt that there's a tendency to romanticise grief often in films. You see a kind of elegant tear rolling down the cheek of the hero or heroine, but you don't see that desperate, snotty, wretched, dark, malevolent even sometimes stuff that we feel when we're really broken hearted. And it's important That we tell those stories and that people can recognize themselves in the film and know that it's okay it's Mm. and also that the film is ultimately quite optimistic and and you know things will move on you feel that they'll never move on you'll never recover you'll never get over it life will never be the same again but it will it will and it does and and i think finally the film is is hopeful i i hope um in 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 telling that story
1: Well, Juliet, thank you so much for telling me about your books to live by. What a wonderful selection uh, they were. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I'm very grateful me to too. you for spending the time just thinking about, you know, what titles to choose and, and giving it that much thought. And yeah, care. it was thank blissful
0: you. torture, Marielle. No, thank you. I've <laughs> really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so, so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app.